If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be looking at a message I've entitled, The Fullness of Time. The Fullness of Time, out of Galatians chapter 4, will be in verses 4 and 5, just two verses for us this morning, but we'll see that it's rich with meaning and rich with fulfillment, and uh, will hopefully bless and encourage us on this special Christmas Eve. So, The Fullness of Time, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, let me read these two verses and then we'll jump into our time together this morning. Here Paul writes to the church in Galatia, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Again, thank you for the joy and the privilege of singing songs that would exalt our Savior, and allow us to worship and to express our gratitude and our adoration to where it belongs, which is on the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're so thankful that during this season, while we can be easily distracted with all the trappings of Christmas, that we're able to come together into this place to worship Him who came in the fullness of time, Him who was born as the Son of Man and the Son of God, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of the king. So be exalted in our hearts as we consider these truths this morning from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, well-known preacher Haddon Robinson tells a story about a married woman who decided to go on her own private tour of Europe. And so she left from the Midwest, and she traveled to London, and then from there she was going to go to Paris, and then Rome, and then Vienna. And when she got to London, she called her husband back home in the Midwest and said, how are you doing? And her husband said, I'm doing fine, but our cat Lucy died. So his wife starts bawling her eyes out on the phone, and when she regains her composure, she says, you insensitive brute of a man, why did I ever marry someone like you? You just have no concern whatsoever about my feelings. The husband said, well, what was I supposed to have said? The wife thinks about it for a moment, and she says, well... When I got to London and I called you as I just did, you could have said, Lucy, our cat is on the roof. And then when I got to Paris, you could have said, Lucy, our cat fell down from the roof. And then when I got to Rome, you could have said, Lucy's not doing so well. And then when I got to Vienna, you could have finally said, Lucy died. So then the wife said, by the way, how is mother? The husband responded, <laughs> She's on the roof. <laughs> the wife thought her husband had bad timing for delivering such important news. There's really never a good time to deliver bad news. It can be very difficult to know exactly what to say and how to say it. And on the other hand, while delivering good news is far more exciting, it can sometimes be a challenge as well. For the mothers that are with us today, think back to when you shared the good news of your first pregnancy. You probably thought about it for a little bit, about how will I communicate to my husband that we are now with child. It's exciting news, it's good news, but sometimes can be difficult to think, how will I share that with my husband? I remember for Lisa and I, we were uh, married for a year and a half or so. I was on a mission trip to South Africa, had trouble connecting on the uh, you know, internet through Skype uh, to my wife. And finally, when we were able to connect a few days later, she told me, you're gonna be a father. And I'll never forget that moment. It was great news coming from a long ways away, and it's a joy to have good news. So I wonder if we talk about delivering a new baby, I wonder how Jesus' mother Mary felt when the angel Gabriel approached her when she was most likely around 14 or 15 years old and told her that she would become the mother of the Savior of the world. 
Imagine what she must have felt or thought in that very moment. And of course, Luke chapter 1 gives us some indication of the interactions between Gabriel and Mary. Just listen. It says that when he, when he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have, been, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So how did Mary respond, if you remember? And Mary said to the angel, how shall this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So at, at the time when this news was delivered to Mary from the angel Gabriel, I believe that you know she was not married. Right? We read from Matthew, she was betrothed to Joseph and being a just man, he was going to divorce her quietly, but she's not married when she receives this news from Gabriel. And now she's going to become pregnant and at the time, you know, in the first century, she lived in a very conservative Jewish culture, I would say even more conservative in that culture than our culture would be today for Mary to be pregnant out of wedlock would have been announced as a huge scandal. And according to the Old Testament law, it could be that she would even be stoned to death. And to make matters worse, in the ninth month of her pregnancy, Mary had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem with her fiancé Joseph because Caesar Augustus had issued a decree that a census would be taken from the whole Roman Empire. And so the timing of Mary's pregnancy, if we focus just on her, seems really bad. It seemed like a very bad time for her to receive this news that at age 14 or 15, she would become pregnant and she's not even fully married. And yet Mary doesn't complain. Mary doesn't whine about it. She doesn't reject this unique privilege even though for, uh, from a human perspective, the timing again for her personally seems really bad, but from God's perspective, however, according to our text for this morning from Galatians 4, 4 and 5, the timing was perfect. It, it was in the fullness of time. This was the exact right moment and the exact right young lady that God had picked from eternity past to bring this good news into the world. And so this morning, as we look just at Galatians 4, 4 and 5 as a springboard to you know, observe a few other things, we're going to see a three-part outline that will help us understand exactly what this means to be born in the fullness of time. So let's look at this outline together. Number one, let's talk about the perfect timing. The perfect timing in your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture. And so looking at the beginning of verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come. Now, I know we're kind of parachuting down into Galatians, and you may not have a lot of context for this book, this epistle of Galatians, so let me just remind you, this is Paul's manifesto of justification by faith. That's what Galatians is all about, justification by faith. And because we've been justified by faith, we now have liberty as Christians, and it ought to produce great liberty in the life of a believer. Now, in this context of Galatians, certain Jewish legalists were influencing the believers in Galatia. They were young in their faith, and they were trying to influence these new believers to trade their newfound freedom in Christ for the bondage of keeping the Old Testament law. And so Paul writes this letter to refute their false gospel of works and to demonstrate the superiority of justification by grace. And of course, justification by grace is based solely on the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of Jesus, believers in Christ have been redeemed from the curse of the law and are adopted as sons and daughters of God by faith alone. And so in Galatians 
4.4, Paul explains more about the birth of Christ, and he says, again, when the fullness of time had come. So what does this expression mean, when the fullness of time had come, that God sent forth his son? Well, the fullness of time means that the time was ripe. It means that the time was perfect. It means that God sent forth his son in accordance with his providence and his plan to come into the world at exactly this way, at exactly this time, and this is a fulfillment of scripture. Jesus had said back in Mark 1:15, he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so throughout history, God had been whispering, promising, and suggesting that he would indeed send a savior. And it all started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and fell away from God. They experienced a sense of alienation between themselves and God. But God promised, in fact, just turn there, hold your place in Galatians, go to Genesis 3, 15. God promised at this very time, right after the fall, when sin entered the world, he promised in Galatians, or excuse me, Genesis 3:15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, you know that's the proto-euangelion. It's the first evangelical, first gospel prophecy in the Bible. And the verse is prophesying that while Satan may eventually, in some regard, bruise Christ's heel, which he did on the cross, Christ would ultimately crush Satan's head, which he also did on the cross. And so Satan puts forth great effort to ruin God's plan, but God effortlessly defeated Satan exactly in the way that he planned to and precisely at the proper time. And so we understand just in general that this prophecy, it was fulfilled when Christ was born. And so the fullness of time certainly is referring in a general sense to fulfillment of scripture. But secondly, your second blank, specifically, it's also a fulfillment of the covenants. It's a fulfillment of the covenants. And here I'm talking about biblical covenants that are given to us in the Bible. You're already there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Turn over to Genesis 12, verses 1 through 2, and you'll see uh, one of the major covenants that God gives. God, God would approach a Middle Eastern nomad named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And they were this elderly couple who had struggled with for decades with infertility, and God said to them, you will miraculously conceive, and through your seed will be a seed that will bless the nations of the world. And that seed would ultimately be fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who would bless the whole world. And we read about that in the Abrahamic covenant there in Genesis chapter 12. Look at verses one through two. It says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Look at verse three as well. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, that's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. That's the beginning of the covenant. God doubles down on it in Genesis 15. We could read Genesis 17 and 18 and all through the book of Genesis and through the Bible, there's references again and again to this premier covenant. And this covenant was a promise that Abraham's lineage would receive land and that they would receive a special seed and that they would receive a blessing that would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And the premier fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant is found in Christ. Go back now, if you will, me to Galatians. We're in Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Galatians 3, 8 through 11. And we'll see this Abrahamic covenant fulfilled specifically. Galatians 3, 8. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel 
beforehand to Abraham saying, and now he's quoting from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so we understand the righteous live by faith because the righteous have the same faith that Abraham had. And Abraham and his lineage gave birth to the Messiah, who was the seed that would bring blessing for all of those who are in Christ. And so basically we're just learning that the same gospel preached to us was preached to Abraham beforehand. He was a believer, not because of his works or because of the law, but because of faith. And in the same way today, we're justified not by the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, our redeemer. This is the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in the fullness of time. Years later, God would approach one of Abraham's many times removed great-grandsons by the name of David, King David, and tell him that he would have a son that would have a son that would have a son that would reign on a kingdom and sit on the throne forever. And so this is the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was a special promise that God made to David that, again, he would have a son who would have a son whose name would be Jesus, and he would be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And throughout scripture, God promises that this king would reign forever. And the essence of that Davidic covenant is given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when it says to David, uh, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And then it says a few verses later in verse 16, 2 Samuel 7, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So we're seeing the Bible building. It's building the Abrahamic covenant. It's building on the Davidic covenant. It, 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 we're including a promise here of a blessing in redemption from Genesis 12, 3, the Abrahamic covenant, from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, the Davidic covenant, that this blessing would be firmly established in the Davidic king and his kingdom would be uh, forever. And this same promise then finds fulfillment in the new covenant. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah 31, 31, Jeremiah 31, 31, so building from the Abrahamic covenant into the Davidic covenant, that there would be a promise that would be Christ, that the seed would be Christ, that he would, his kingdom would reign forever. That's part of the Davidic promise. And the new covenant is the truth here that this is going to be coming place, coming forth in the person of Christ and the new work that he does in our hearts. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant, it says a new covenant, with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. By the way, that is a reference to the Mosaic covenant. So that was a different form of covenant, a different jurisdiction, a different type of administration for the people of Israel to live under the law during the Old Testament. And uh, the prophecy here of Jeremiah is saying, I'm going to replace that old covenant with a new covenant that would be replacing the Mosaic with the new covenant. And yet the Abrahamic and Davidic continue into the new covenant. And so in verse 33, it says, for this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. This is the distinction of the new covenant. The old covenant's written on a tablet of stone. The new covenant's written on the hearts of those who are in Christ. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest says the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And so the new covenant was ratified 
by Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the Davidic king, the redeemer who will one day restore everything according to Acts 3.21. So we're seeing the fulfillment of time is in general fulfillment of scripture, specifically a fulfillment of the Abrahamic, Davidic, and new covenants. And then we certainly can't forget about the 70th week of Daniel. That's your next blank. This is also a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And Daniel's prophecy has to do with the timing of the birth of the Savior. And this prophecy gives us exact timing of when Christ would come. Jesus is referred to in this passage as the anointed one and the prince here in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. We see very specific time frames that are given, and I don't want to, you know, overly complicate it, so you're just going to have to see it in a general sense and go back and dig down on this if you want. But Daniel 9.24 says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So with the language there of Daniel 9.24, it's obvious that we're talking about there's a Savior who's coming, and he's going to do these incredible things, like put an end to sin. He will atone for iniquity. He will bring in everlasting righteousness. And it says in verse 25, when this happens, it says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem... That was a special um, timing where there was a Persian king who signed a contract, if you will, for the Israelites to come back out of exile to rebuild Jerusalem. From that time, verse 25 says, to the coming of an anointed one, that would be Christ, a prince, that would be Christ, there will be seven weeks. And then it says in verse 26, And after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And so, again, if you do the math there, and I don't want to overcomplicate this, but the 70 weeks of Daniel, it's really a prophecy saying that after these first 62 weeks and then another seven weeks, then Christ would come and he would be the anointed one and he would be cut off, meaning he would be crucified, roughly calculated to be somewhere between 30 and 33 A.D., and so we read back in Galatians, our main text, verse, chapter 4, verse 4, when Paul says, in the fullness of time, I'm just trying to make sure you understand, it's a very full statement. It's very pregnant with meaning. It is very much understood that there's a lot going on to say this is the fulfillment of time. It's the fulfillment of scripture. It's the fulfillment of all of the biblical covenants. It's the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. It's in the fullness of time, meaning the right time, the perfect time. God's providential time has come. And that Christ is coming at the right time can also be appreciated just by doing a little historical uh, you know, uh, research and understanding that many additional things happened to make this such a uniquely perfect time. In fact, in hindsight, we can see what an opportune time it was when Jesus was born as the Savior of the world. It was ideal politically at that time for Jesus to be born. When Jesus was born, the Roman Empire in many ways was at its zenith. And one of its virtues was that it tended to be tolerant towards religions. Rome said, you can exercise your religion with freedom as long as you proclaim that Caesar is God. And that worked wonderfully for all groups except one, except for the Hebrew people. And so the Jews were adamant about not worshiping any God except Yahweh, as you know, a monotheistic uh, faith, which we hold to as Christians. And so they weren't about to say Caesar is God, right? And so, uh, you know, they believed in the one true living God as we do in Yahweh. And so because the Jews resisted the law, they were persecuted by the Romans and many of them were killed. But the Roman leaders were pragmatic and decided to bend the rule just a little bit for the Jewish people. The leaders of Rome essentially said, let's change the law just a little bit. Let's say that every people group under our empire must declare that Caesar is God. And then the leaders put in a footnote saying, except for the Jewish people, because they're so stubborn. That's how they felt, right? We're, 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 this has got to happen, but we'll give a little bit of room for the Jewish people because otherwise this is not going to work out. So the Jews were given an exemption. And so when Christ was born 
and Christianity, in essence, was born, the Roman leaders assumed that Christianity was somehow tied to and a part of Judaism, so they gave Christianity the same favor that they gave the Jews. And really, up until about 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem, up, up until that time, those practicing Christianity had pretty much complete freedom to proclaim their message, and it was an ideal time for Christ's good news to be proclaimed. So I'm saying that it was the right time politically, but it's also the right time because it was a time of relative peace. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, a civil war broke out in the Roman Empire, but in year 25 BC, when Caesar Augustus ascended the throne, there was a time of relative peace for about 200 years. And during this time of peace is when Christ was born, roads would have been built. We all know about the Roman roads, and on those roads traveled the good news about Jesus Christ. So it was the right time politically for Jesus to be born. It was also the right time culturally for Christ to be born. There was Alexander the Great who conquered the whole world, which Jesus had now come into, and with Alexander's victory spread Greek culture and Greek language, and more people in Jesus' world than ever before had learned to read and to write, and the Greek language was very precise, and the New Testament was eventually written in Greek And so the gospel spread, the good news of Jesus spread more quickly than it might have spread otherwise. And so it was the right time politically, it was the right time culturally, and some would say it was also the right time spiritually because of the Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle had done a wonderful job of raising questions as to the meaning of life. And some people would say that the Greek philosophers plowed the fields of the human heart and Christ and his followers then sowed the seeds of meaning. And so God can use, all of this to say, God can use difficult circumstances to accomplish great and good things in his timing, politically, culturally, and spiritually. It was the perfect time for Christ to be born. God, through his angel Gabriel, came to Mary and said to her, you will experience the Holy Spirit coming upon you and you will miraculously conceive and give birth to the Savior of the world. And it was bad timing for Mary personally because she was unwed, but through Mary's humble obedience, God was achieving his grand purposes, the fulfillment of scripture, the fulfillment of the covenants, the fulfillment of 70 weeks of Daniel, the fulfillment of culture and politics and and, and religious questions all coming together for this time. It's a perfect time, but not only do we see in our text this morning this perfect timing, it's a perfect plan. It's our second heading. It's a perfect plan that we're looking at here because in the rest of verse four, it says that God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law. So your next blank says that Jesus was born to a virgin. He was born to a virgin. Jesus didn't show up by accident. God had a plan to send his son to redeem the world, and God had a plan on exactly how, not only on exactly when, but exactly how Jesus would come. He would come in humility, and he would come into humanity, and he would come as a baby boy. As you know, Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. We read that from Matthew 1 and 2, quoting Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. The fact that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her womb was a miracle. This is a, a miracle of uh, unlike any other. This is a clear fulfillment of prophecy from that Isaiah passage, and that's why it's stated in Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. Very clear articulation of the details here, isn't it? Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
And then a few verses later again, it says that this was happened to take to fulfill what the Lord had said from the Isaiah 7, 14 passage, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the fact that Jesus is fully God and yet born of a woman is simply fascinating. That God would take half of the, of the, of the DNA of Jesus from the mother Mary of what are called haploid cells in the egg to create and conceive a newborn being, half of them, 23 chromosomes from Mary, and that the Holy Spirit would provide the other 23 chromosomes so that when Mary's egg was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, at that moment you have the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ in total humility. In a split second, he was one cell, just one cell, the savior of the world, born to the Virgin Mary in this miraculous way, fully God and yet fully man. And we understand that theologians call this the hypostatic union. How could it be that that a man could have divine nature and human nature at the same time? And this is yet the necessity of the incarnation that God would overshadow Mary through the Holy Spirit and that she would be without, without, that she would be with child without ever being with a man, right? Jesus had a divine nature. He had a human nature and Jesus was without sin and yet he lived in a world filled with sin. And so Jesus is born to the Virgin Mary, but secondly, Jesus was born under the law. Not only was he born to a virgin, we're saying this is part of God's perfect plan, but he was born under the law. There in verse four, again, that he was born of woman, born under the law. This means that Jesus was to obey God's law, that Jesus was to obey God's word. This means that, that just as all men are called to obey God's word and God's law, that Jesus was called in the same way to obey God's word and God's law, but Jesus did what we could never do. Jesus kept God's law perfectly, and Jesus never sinned, and Jesus was and is holy, and he was and is perfectly righteous, First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. First John chapter 3, verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And of course, Hebrews 4.15 says, for we do not serve a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, Jesus was born to a virgin. This was part of God's perfect plan so that Jesus, Jesus could be our perfect, spotless sacrifice. Jesus was born under the law. This was God's perfect plan so that Jesus could demonstrate perfect obedience to the law and therefore become our substitute. And then we see in your next blank that Jesus was born to save sinners. He was born under the law. The rest of verse uh, five then says to redeem those who were under the law. And so the angel Gabriel said of Mary in Matthew 1.21 that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And because Jesus never sinned and because he was perfectly holy, his loving sacrifice on the cross appeased God's wrath against sin. Which is why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He's a perfect sacrifice. He's born to save sinners. He's born to make the unrighteous righteous. This was God's divine plan all along. It's a perfect plan. It's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's the truth of Christmas That even this morning, if you were to turn from your sin and you were to turn to God, that on this day, on Christmas Eve, you could be born again. 
you could be saved. You could have new life if you would just confess your sins and know that he will forgive you. For Romans 10, 9 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. And the good news of Christmas is you could do that this very morning. We're here, church is open all the time for people who want to come to Christ. And those of you who are here visiting or hanging out with family or maybe you're not you know, in church as regular, we're glad that you're here. And we just want to remind you that Jesus came for you. He came for me. He came for all of us as sinners in the perfect timing when he was born, in the perfect way to be the savior of the world. And that can work itself out in your life as we look at number three with the perfect result. The perfect result. So we have the perfect timing, the perfect way, the perfect result. Verse five again says here that he's born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So your next blank there says that the perfect result is found in redemption. There's a means to an end here, right? It's not just the beauty of the baby Jesus. It's what he came to do. To to redeem here, it says that he came to redeem those who were under the law. To redeem something is to purchase it. It it means to buy it back. This is what Christ has done for every repentant sinner. He, He redeems you. He buys you back. He's able to purchase you because of the purity of his own sacrifice on the cross that while he had never sinned, he became sin for us. And because of that, when he was raised from the dead, he accomplished redemption. And he's able, fully able to not only redeem you, but to regenerate you, to give you new life, to renew you, every single part about you, to give you a new nature. And though you and I are under the law, guilty of our sin, he brings us into his kingdom by grace. Remember, look, look back at Galatians 3, Galatians 3, 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that we might, verse 14, receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us has sinned against God, against his word, and so therefore we're guilty and deserving of death and hell. According to Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we understand that the law of God says we deserve death. That's what the law says. You sin, The wages of your sin is death. So the law of God says we deserve death, but the grace of God says here is an offer of eternal life. The law of God says you're guilty because of your sin, but the grace of God says Jesus paid for your sin in full. The law of God says condemned. The grace of God says converted in Christ. That's the perfect result that God does in repentant sinners when they come by faith. And not only do they come and find redemption in Christ, but your next blank says that the perfect result is also found in adoption. It's found in adoption. The rest of that verse, that that we could be redeemed even though we're under the law and guilty, but we might be redeemed so that we might receive not only redemption, but adoption as sons. If you were to repent of your sins and to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you will be adopted into his family with all of the privileges therein. As blood-bought children of God, you become a son or a daughter of the King. And as a child of God, you can relate to him as your father. That's the relationship we have as sons and daughters. We relate to him as fathers. Adoption is one of the primary benefits of the saving work of Jesus Christ applied to the elect by faith. And in justification, when we're saved, God vindicates guilty sinners in the divine law court by declaring them righteous in his sight. In adoption, he makes the justified his beloved children with whom he dwells. Romans 
8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so according to God's promise, believers are made sons and daughters of God, heirs according to the promise of redemption. Like justification, adoption is a once-for-all, non-repeatable act of God. Though distinguished from the ongoing process of sanctification, adoption ensures the restoration of God's likeness in his adopted sons and daughters. The doctrine of adoption is one of the central benefits of redemption applied. In justification, God forgives guilty sinners and accepts them as righteous in his sight only on account of the blood and righteousness of Christ. In adoption, he brings those who were once enemies into the family of God, giving them an eternal inheritance. And so in this way, the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection bring sinners from the law court into the living room. You're no longer guilty. You've been declared righteous because of Christ, but not only are you righteous, you come into God's family. And he relates to you as a father, as a loving father, where we can call out to him this morning, Abba, Father, which means he gives us all that he has in the inheritance that we receive, as 1 Peter 1.4 talks about an inheritance which is imperishable, which is undefiled, which is unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we don't deserve God's love, but he gives it anyway. And when we can't earn our salvation, we have to understand it is a free gift. And we can't save ourselves by our own good efforts, but by believing in, that the, in the fullness of time that God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. It's an amazing truth. Let me end with one more illustration talking about understanding the fullness of time. It comes from a well-known person of our modern day, Steve Jobs, who was the co-founder and CEO of Apple. He died back in 2011 at the age of 56. He did not believe in God, but he did believe that there were some types of good forces in the universe, some type of benevolent power that was shaping all of life. And a few years before he died, he gave a graduation speech at Stanford in which he recounted his story of being born to an unwed mother who put him up for adoption. An adoption that almost didn't happen after his biological mother found out that his adoptive parents were actually not college graduates. After dropping out of college himself as a young man, Jobs learned about the uniqueness and the beauty of type faces and took a calligraphy class. And here's what he said at that Stanford address of graduation years ago. He said this, looking back, dropping out of college was one of the best decisions I ever made. The minute I dropped out, I could stop taking the required classes that didn't interest me and begin dropping in on the ones that looked interesting. Let me give you one example. Reed College, he said at the time, offered perhaps the best calligraphy instruction in the country. Throughout campus, every poster, every label, every drawer was beautifully hand calligraphied. Because I had dropped out and didn't have to take uh, the normal classes, I decided to take a calligraphy class to learn how to do this. I learned about serif and sans serif typefaces about varying the amount of space between the different letter combinations about what makes great typography great. It was beautiful, historical, artistically subtle in a way that science can't capture. And I found it fascinating. None of this would have ever happened if I didn't drop out of college. And I had no idea how taking this class would benefit or apply in my life, but 10 years later, when we were designing the first Macintosh computer, then it all came back to me when we designed it into the Mac. It was the first computer with beautiful typography. 
If I had never dropped in on a single course in college, the Mac would have had the multiple type, would, uh, the Mac would have never had the multiple typefaces proportionately or proportionately spaced fonts. Since Windows just copied Mac, it's likely that no personal computer would have them. If I had never dropped out, I would have never dropped in on that calligraphy class, and perhaps personal computers may not have the wonderful typography that they do. Of course, it is impossible to connect the dots looking forward when I was in college, but it was very, very clear looking backwards 10 years later. It's still Jobs talking, all right? One f- final summary. This is the point he's trying to make. He, then, he, then he said this, again, You can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. But you have to trust the dots will somehow connect in the future. You have to trust in something. You have to trust in something. Do you hear what he's saying? This is an unbeliever who in some ways redefined you know, the smartphone and the computer, as we understand. But he said, you have to trust in something. And what I'm trying to say to you this morning is, why not trust in someone? Why not trust in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is able to save you from your sins? Why not trust in someone defined by Scripture who fulfilled all prophecy and who's overcome every obstacle? Why not trust in the living God? Why not this very morning put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you're sitting here today and God is beginning to connect the dots of everything that's ever happened to you. Maybe in the fullness of time, it's starting to make sense. So will you trust him with your life? Some of us want to be the general manager of our own universe, but with our finite minds, I'm telling you that The one who created the universe and who runs everything can do a far better job than you or I could ever do ourselves. And that's why Mary is such a perfect model because Mary, when God spoke to her through the angel and is told you're going to become the mother of the most high, Mary knows that it will cataclysmically uh, disrupt her life. But that at the same time, She said, yes, may it be according to me as you have said. It's beautiful, right? It was going to entangle her in all kind of rumor and scandal. And yet it was the perfect time. And she was the perfect person to walk in obedience to the Lord's choosing of her to bear the Lord Jesus. And so it's easy looking back on Mary's life to say that she made the right decision because we have the benefit of hindsight, but Mary didn't have that benefit Sometimes people will say something like, it's easy to trust God looking backward. I can connect the dots, but it's hard to trust God right now because I don't know what the future holds. Well, the way that we trust God looking forward is by looking back to Mary and the son that she bore, the son of God. God in human flesh who was once a baby and then became a man and at the age of 33 died on a Roman cross as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to God. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all thanks? Right, that's the good news. That's connecting the dots to understand what God did in giving up his son for sinners like you and like me. And so when God speaks to you, not necessarily through an angel like Gabriel, but through scripture and through his word, and when he instructs your heart, will you say, yes, Lord, let it be to me according to your word? Will, will you surrender to the living God and trust him to weave something beautiful of what you might think is a mess in your life today, that you would by faith trust in this baby who became a man who is our sacrifice, the Lord Jesus who died and was raised again, that through his life, you might have new life this very morning. Only God can put the pieces together 
And going forward, only God can help you connect the dots to see all along he was at work in a special way. And if that's something God's stirring in your heart, even this morning, before we close with our last song, we'll have a few people standing right over here by this door. And we'd love to talk to you about how you could connect the dots. And we'd love to talk to you about how in the fullness of time, Christ came to die for sinners like you and like me. May we understand that he truly is weaving something beautiful throughout our life for his glory and for our good. And so in the take-home part of the message this morning, just a few applicational thoughts to take with you. How, how does seeing God's perfect timing in the birth of Jesus help you better appreciate the perfect timing of everything that God orchestrates in your life? You know, maybe you're here this morning and you're like, you're kind of feeling like Mary might have felt, this isn't the right time. I'm 14 or 15 years old and I'm not married. Surely this cannot be from God. And yet it was happening. And maybe you've got something going on in your life and you're like, there's no way this sickness, this, this job, this situation, this relationship, this opportunity is just not the right timing. Well, maybe God's working something sovereignly through even what seems to be personally out of time for you because he has a bigger plan. Just trust him by faith. I'm not saying go do something stupid. I'm just saying, by faith, trust that God is sovereign over the timing of what's happening in your life. Number two, how does the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin under the law to save sinners encourage you to worship him this Christmas Eve? Just seeing all the beauty of the fact that he's our perfect sacrifice and that he came to save sinners like you and like me, that ought to encourage us to worship him like never before. And then last, has God's perfect result of redemption and adoption, from verse five, he redeems us and adopts us, has that taken place in your life in a way that you will never, ever be the same again? Because if that hasn't happened in your life, that's what we want to talk to you about after our last song together this morning. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just look at such a rich passage, the fullness of time, we see here that Jesus came in the, exactly the right time, fulfilling all of scripture, fulfilling all of the covenants, fulfilling the, the, the prophecy, 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel. Thank you for the perfect timing. God, thank you for the perfect plan that Jesus, who was born under the law, that, that he was born of, of a woman, that, that can have the perfect result in our life to redeem us and that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. I pray that these truths would reign supremely in our thoughts throughout this day on Christmas Eve and even tomorrow on Christmas Day. We're so thankful that we have the opportunity to experience this service together and to learn together from your word and to sing songs and to interact in a way that would glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to ponder yet anew the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of the fact that, that Jesus came to the Virgin Mary, meaning there's a miraculous, overshadowed, partly cells provided by Mary and partly divine cells provided from on high. May we never stop thinking about the beauty of the incarnation, which alone would make it possible for Christ to be our true substitute, to die in our place. And thank you for the resurrection truth that Jesus did conquer death, hell, and the grave, that he crushed Satan's head, and that for all eternity he reigns. And he reigns supremely in heaven and in the hearts of his people and his kingdom will know no end. And forever and ever may we gather around the throne to worship and say, blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. May he receive all glory and honor and blessing forever and ever. And I pray that we would be able this season to worship you and to live for you, to be radically transformed by you in ways that would bring joy and purpose and meaning into our lives. And, it, and even when things happen, they don't seem like they happen the right way in the right time. We can be reminded of this text, that it's in the fullness of time, that you're bringing about all things together for your glory and for our good. Help us to know that, to believe that, to trust in these truths from your word and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.